In the last episode, I barely grazed the surface of what was going on when Peter Piper escaped from prison the first time. But I think it's important to delve a bit deeper and explore what was happening in Lake County around that same time with the community and the Sheriff's Department so you understand how a violent offender was so easily able to walk away from prison. Well before Sheriff Blevins legal troubles around the mishandling of county money, which would eventually end with him losing his next election as the Lake County Sheriff, there was an officer-involved shooting that brought the racial tensions within the community to a fever pitch. The opening paragraphs in a Detroit Free Press article dated October 21, 1984, reads as follows. Lake County Sheriff Robert Blevins, who calls himself the Bulldog, was in snarling form. During an interview, he had referred to the county prosecutor as a wimp. He said the former Republican County Chairman was a liar and described the felony and misdemeanor charges pending against himself as a horse's ass. The ass part was understood beneath the three delicate dashes printed in place of the S's in the newspaper. The article went on to say, it was the sort of running diatribe which has come to characterize Blevins since he took over as sheriff in 1979. It is that sort of rhetoric coupled with the negative publicity Lake County has received since he took office that has alienated him from virtually every elected official and many former supporters. Blevins, at 39, is at the center of one of the most combative and, for sheer entertainment value, one of the most interesting political contests in the state. The article points to an incident early in his career as a Kent County deputy when he was suspended without pay for 30 days in 1972 after a civil suit was filed against him and the Sheriff's Department. A man named John Rincones, a Mexican-American, who Blevins arrested for drunk driving, alleged that Blevins had beat him with metal knuckles and made derogatory comments about Mexicans. The lawsuit was settled out of court for $3,000, 2000 of which Blevins paid himself. Then the article went on to describe the more recent racial incident involving Sheriff Blevins, which was an officer-involved shooting of a man named James Wilson in June of 1983. Because I like to keep the listener firmly planted in the time frame and context of all these cases, this incident would have occurred five months after the murder of Jeanette Robertson in Reed City, my season two case, and it would have occurred six months before Peter Piper would escape that December. That would mean that Detective Pratt would be handling both and the officer-involved shooting investigation on top of the other homicides that would continue to occur in the next couple of years. The Thompsons would occur in May of 1984 and Sue Clayson, the real estate agent killed four months later in September of 1984. Needless to say, there was not a lot of dust settling on Detective Pratt at this point. So let's discuss the officer-involved shooting, which 
is important not only because it brought to the fore much racial tension that had been bubbling just beneath the surface within the community, but also for how it would later be discussed as a possible cause of an alleged assassination attempt on Sheriff Blevins. Alleged being the operative word here. Mr. James N. Wilson was born in Opelika, Alabama, and had been married for 37 years when he was killed. He worked for the Lake County Road Commission as a custodian. At the time of this incident, he was just days away from attending a family reunion in Florida, one that he had eagerly anticipated, according to his family and friends. In fact, he had gone that very day to pick up the airplane ticket in Grand Rapids, and it sat on his dashboard when police went through his car later for evidence. Mr. Wilson was a 59-year-old African-American man who was shot by Deputy Randy Gerke of the Lake County Sheriff's Department, who was 26 years old at the time, and only two years on the job when the incident occurred. I'm going to say right at the jump that the shooting was eventually ruled justifiable homicide by the prosecutor, even though after that ruling, Detective Pratt continued his investigation for months for a variety of reasons, most of which having to do with positively nailing down every piece of information because he had not even completed his investigation before the prosecutor made his ruling. I also want to say right away that having gone through the entire case file on that shooting, I feel comfortable with the ruling of the prosecutor as a matter of law because of the many witnesses to the incident, many of whom saw Mr. Wilson firing at the deputy. Their statements fit together to paint a pretty clear picture of what occurred that night. Among these witnesses were a Lake County commissioner and his wife, the postmaster of Baldwin, and a man who worked for the Forest Service. So basically, this is what happened. Mr. Wilson was speeding and got pulled over by Deputy Gerke in an area where there were multiple residences where people were able to observe the two cars parked out on the shoulder for what ended up being a long enough time that Mr. Wilson got out of his car and became belligerent with the deputy about why it was taking so long. Later, when the deputy's car was inspected by Detective Pratt, he found an open vehicle code manual sitting on the front seat, along with two citations that had already been written. They were still attached to the citation booklet, one for a violation involving a mutilated operator's license and the other for speeding. It appears as though it was taking some time for the deputy to research the citation code, as the information he called in from the license and registration did come back pretty quickly, about five minutes. Mr. Wilson's driver's license and registration were also found on the seat in the patrol car, and it was noted that the last two numbers in the series that made up his operator's license were scratched out. So was his middle initial. The radar unit in the car was locked and flashing at 69 miles an hour for the target vehicle and 57 miles an hour for the patrol car speed. Sheriff Blevins was at the scene along with other Lake County Sheriff's deputies when Detective Pratt arrived. By that time, a body lay beneath a yellow blanket between the two vehicles. The EMS personnel had already been to the scene and left finding the man deceased 
before Detective Pratt arrived. Blevins then told the detective that Deputy Gerke had stopped the victim for speeding and was writing the tickets when the victim became combative. At that point, the deputy decided to arrest him for disorderly conduct, and the victim began struggling as he was trying to handcuff him. They both fell to the ground behind the victim's car, and at some point, the victim grabbed the deputy's service revolver from its holster and pointed it at the deputy. There was more struggling. The deputy said he then went for his mace, couldn't get that out, and then drew his backup gun from his front pocket. The multiple witness accounts basically lined up. Some heard the man yelling, if you're gonna give me a ticket, just give it to me. Another heard the man say, if you don't give me that ticket, I'm gonna leave. Multiple people ran to assist the deputy when the two men were struggling on the ground, but everyone took cover when the deputy yelled, he's got a gun. Some even saw the actual gunfire at the point that both men had gotten back to their feet, although a single witness remembered seeing the African-American man doubled over at one point. Later, a bottle of nitroglycerin for chest pains was found on the ground nearby, and later in the investigation it was learned that Mr. Wilson did have heart trouble. There were multiple shots fired by both men, and Eventually, Mr. Wilson was shot and fell forward and died instantly. It does become clear that the deputy had the man pulled over for some length of time. One witness described serving dinner as the man was first being pulled over and her family completely finishing dinner with her even going upstairs to do some chores before she even heard the man begin to shout. According to her, she heard the man say, you can't arrest me for a traffic violation. You don't have no right. These are my witnesses. Presumably, Mr. Wilson began pointing to the people who had started coming outside to see what the fuss was about. Another woman who had come with her husband to one of the nearby homes recalled seeing the man shouting obscenities at the deputy while he was in his patrol car and then being ordered to go back to his own vehicle. She observed that as he was walking back to the car, the deputy exited his patrol car and at that point told him he was under arrest. Officer Gerke would say that he only got out of his car after the man had started back to his car but had turned back around and come back toward the patrol car. The next thing this woman knew, her brother and her husband were running toward the scuffle and uh, two men were on the ground. She said the deputy was on top with his knee in the man's chest and she heard one of them say, help me, but she wasn't sure if it was the deputy or Mr. Wilson. Then by her account, the men were up off the ground again and they were shooting at each other. There isn't any debate about the fact that Mr. Wilson grabbed the deputy's gun and pointed it at him. So from my perspective, that is a clear, justifiable homicide. You can't grab a cop's gun, point it at him, and expect to come out of that interaction alive. Now I have a whole lot of feelings about the use of excessive force 
and officer-involved shootings where the victim is unarmed. But this was not that type of situation. There was, however, as you would expect, a lot of community speculation afterward about whether the gun had been planted, given the deputy had two on his person and they weren't privy to the fact that both weapons were traced back as being registered to Deputy Gerke. Neither was a random plant weapon and multiple witnesses actually saw Mr. Wilson pointing the gun at him and firing after the struggle on the ground had occurred. There were also two vodka bottles found inside the car and those will become an interesting part of the investigation for a couple reasons. The deputy stated that he never saw them and Sheriff Blevins had told Detective Pratt that the scene had not been touched except for the opening of the driver's door on the victim's vehicle where he and Sergeant Seelhoff of the Sheriff's Department had noted two bottles of liquor laying on the left front floorboard. According to Seelhoff and Blevins, the left front floorboard was wet with one bottle having a loose cap. Deputy Gerke never mentioned seeing any of that and in fact, in his report, specifically said that he'd seen no contraband when obtaining the victim's license and registration. This is further supported by the fact that no field sobriety test was ever initiated, nor were any citations written for DUI. Although he would later say when he was interviewed that he had smelled the slight odor of alcohol on the victim. So he had smelled the slight odor of alcohol, but he never asked anything about the alcohol and never found the bottles on the floor. The victim's possible drunkenness would be challenged by a witness who Mr. Wilson had just left from visiting at Gerber Memorial Hospital before the traffic stop occurred. This person insisted that he had not been drunk, nor had they smelled alcohol on him. Another couple, who had ridden the elevator at the hospital with Mr. Wilson, also said they had not smelled any alcohol on him. When Deputy Gerke was questioned early that morning around 3.30 a.m. by Detective Pratt, he requested that Sergeant Seelhoff be present. After establishing how the stop had occurred and how he had originally passed the car in the opposite direction and turned to follow him when the radar locked at 68 miles an hour, he described pulling him over. He said the driver got out of his car and he had to advise him to remain in the car. The deputy said the man became very upset for some unknown reason insulting his intelligence and saying he wasn't speeding. He said that after he received verbal abuse and insults from the subject, he obtained the license and registration and the man informed him that he worked for the road commission. The deputy said he took that to mean that because he worked for the road commission, it gave him some extra rights and he was not supposed to get a citation. According to Deputy Gerke, the man was very hostile and speaking in a very loud tone of voice that he described as yelling. In this statement, he also said that while he had looked for contraband in the car, he had not seen any. The deputy says that when he went back to the patrol vehicle and began writing citations, and while he was looking for the violation code of one of the offenses, the victim came back to the patrol car. He was asked to return to his car and was told he would be contacted in a few minutes because the deputy was not quite finished. Deputy Gerke said the suspect was very upset, wrongly stated that it had been 45 minutes, and again began insulting his intelligence, saying he had no business stopping him. 
In reality, it had been closer to 20 minutes from the time he was pulled over until the time of the altercation, although Deputy Gerke does seem a bit defensive about his intelligence being insulted. He repeated this in his statement multiple times. The deputy said that at this point, he believed he had taken all the verbal abuse he thought he had to take, and the suspect was creating a disturbance. People were beginning to come out of their homes. Deputy Gerke said he told the man to place his hands on the trunk, which he did, and when he grabbed the man's left hand to place it behind his back, the suspect broke his hold and pushed him back, asking why he was being arrested. He was told that he was being arrested for being a disorderly person and that he was hindering in the performance of the deputy's duty of issuing the tickets by continually coming back to the patrol car and harassing him. When the toxicology results eventually came back, the victim's blood alcohol level was found to be at 0.195%. It was learned that Mr. Wilson had purchased one pint of Mohawk vodka around 2 o'clock that afternoon at a local store. Detective Pratt interviewed Sheriff Blevins a second time because it was learned from another source at the scene that the sheriff had handled the alcohol bottles in the vehicle, but he did not offer that information when Detective Pratt asked him the first time about what he had touched. During the second interview, when Detective Pratt asked again what had been touched, Sheriff Blevins told him that he had checked the service revolver near Mr. Wilson's body by tipping it up and opening the cylinder. He noted three rounds had been fired. However, he still made no mention of handling the alcohol bottles. And there were some other troubling things that came out during the investigation. In an article in the Detroit Free Press, Mr. Alvin Smith, the Lake County Ambulance Service Director, who is African American, was quoted in the paper as saying that white officers at the scene had ordered the ambulance crew away. He said he heard one dispatcher say, it's not a deputy shot, it's just a black guy. Obviously, that did not help tamp down the racial tensions. So Detective Pratt made an effort to get radio traffic recordings to confirm this allegation, but because the Lake County Sheriff's Department didn't record the radio traffic at the time, he had to contact both Macosta and Nuevo counties because they did. Unfortunately, neither recorded radio traffic on the frequency used by Lake County Sheriff's Department so he was never able to confirm that allegation. Another very problematic issue arose when Detective Pratt looked into the Lake County Sheriff's Department's lien check. It turned out to have been in error. In reviewing the criminal history check they had done, Detective Pratt did not feel that they had correctly identified the victim. Even when Detective Pratt advised Sheriff Blevins of this, the sheriff still insisted on making a public press release which stated that Mr. Wilson was believed to be a wanted individual and had an extensive assaultive background, including against police officers. While I suspect that early press release was to mitigate the damage of the public's perception of the officer-involved shooting, it ended up being false information released by the Lake County Sheriff's Department and only made the situation worse. Most law enforcement officers would have understood that releasing that type of information so early Without confirmation, in a situation where racial tensions were already at a boiling point, at its most generous would be seen as unfortunate, but at its worst, seem purposely inflammatory. About a week after the incident, Detective Pratt noted that after cross-checking the victim against another individual, 
he confirmed that the information they released did not pertain to the victim, James Wilson. Mr. Wilson's funeral was held at Christ Community Church in Baldwin and attended by about 300 people. Detective Pratt made contact with the black community leaders prior to his funeral to get their feelings regarding any future problems that might arise. He was doing his best to bridge the gap between the community and law enforcement. At the time, the black community leaders requested the sheriff's department not be present or visible at the funeral and that Michigan State Police handle the traffic in the area for the large crowd. So instead of the Lake County Sheriff's Department handling it, two state troopers were assigned to traffic detail that day. Detective Pratt also sat down with a civil rights lawyer at the home of Robert F. Williams, the activist I mentioned in the previous episode who had been so firmly stuck in Blevins' crawl. Ernest Goodman, an attorney out of Detroit, had the confidence of the community, and it was thought that they would believe what he and Mr. Williams told them about this incident, so Detective Pratt discussed his findings with them in the investigation up to that point. In the end, while it was ruled a justifiable homicide, the FBI testing of the Atomic Absorption Analysis Kit could not provide a positive determination as to whether Mr. Wilson had even fired a gun. But that would be a detail the public would never hear. It might even surprise you to know that those kinds of tests are often inconclusive. People think gun residue and ballistic tests are slam dunks, but from my experience, that is not so for many reasons. They very often come back inconclusive. They weren't even able to get any usable prints off the alcohol bottles, which does seem a bit odd to those of us who expect prints to be fairly easy to get off something like a bottle that a man had allegedly just been drinking from. In the end, more often than not, cases do come down to circumstantial evidence. Witness statements, particularly when they can corroborate one another, timeline information, and the stuff of good old-fashioned police work, knocking on doors and listening to what everyone involved has to say, and then putting it all together and using the physical evidence found at the scene to support the findings. While the case was ruled by the prosecutor as a justifiable homicide on July 21, 1983, Detective Pratt would go on to continue his investigation for months throughout that year. The FBI had also been conducting an investigation into the civil rights violations being looked at by the State House Civil Rights Committee. While nothing was found at issue with the shooting, the committee did find the mishandling of the public money for which Sheriff Blevins would eventually be charged. They also made some recommendations regarding officer training. It is interesting to note that Deputy Gerke resigned in September, two days after Detective Pratt had interviewed him for a second time. He said, It's sad to note a small group of citizens could band together to destroy and lie about nearly every arrest I've made in the past year, 
to systematically and deliberately change those facts to make me out to be a racist and a brutal officer. In his police report, Detective Pratt wrote, It is unknown what prompted the resignation of Randolph Gerke. However, Sheriff Blevins was quoted in the Friday, September 9th edition of the Grand Rapids Press before the task force that, quote, I don't intend to fire him, but I feel his career in law enforcement is over. I feel that very shortly I will have his resignation. I covered this officer-involved shooting because it contains a story within a story, which are both nested within the story of Peter Piper. Not unlike those Russian nesting dolls where you open one up and another pops out. Exactly one week after the officer-involved shooting, and the day before Mr. Wilson's funeral, a curious incident occurred. It's mentioned in Detective Pratt's police report of Mr. Wilson's case as follows. On July 5, 1983, in the late evening, Sheriff Robert Blevins, while responding as backup unit in his marked patrol vehicle, was allegedly fired upon with a shotgun while traveling west on US-10, west of Spruce Street in Cherry Valley Township. It is unclear whether Sheriff Blevins, who suffered an injury to his upper left arm, was struck with shotgun pellets or flying glass from the driver's door window when it was blown out it is not known if the alleged racial tension brought on by the fatal shooting of Mr. James Wilson was the cause for the shooting or if it was an opportunist. Months later, this is how the Detroit Free Press would describe the incident. He said shots were fired at him and he was grazed in what he characterized as an assassination attempt. No suspects were arrested. Many people were skeptical of the sheriff's account. A state task force was called in to investigate after the shooting of Wilson and the purported assassination attempt, received statewide publicity. I would like you to hear Sheriff Blevins' account, excerpted from his biography, before I give you Detective Pratt's findings. I worked until around 10 p.m., then headed home on US-10, driving my black and white patrol vehicle, the Dodge Ram. I was in full uniform. As I approached the village of Chase, a call came over the radio from a deputy who was involved in a high-speed pursuit of a motorcycle. This was taking place behind me on US-10, but they were coming towards me. As I swung my vehicle around, I radioed out, I'm turning around and headed in your direction. The deputy was soon back on the radio. He's abandoning the motorcycle, headed into the woods on foot. Don't pursue him by yourself. Wait till I get there. On my way to assist the deputy in my rearview mirror, I noticed a vehicle gaining speed behind me. Its headlights were being flashed off and on. Obviously, someone was trying to get my attention. I had been going at a pretty good clip to aid the deputy. Now I slowed down to see what these folks wanted. From the mirror, I determined that it was a van or a pickup truck as it had the orange teardrop clearance lights on the roof. The vehicle was almost abreast of me. I quickly turned my head to the left to see what they were trying to get my attention for, and at that instant, it was a loud bang, an explosion. I thought they had driven too close and clipped my car. The next thing I knew, I was going off the road and had this sensation in my arm and my body like being touched by a hot furnace poker. I quickly realized that I had been shot, 
My vehicle was going off the road, and I couldn't control it. Down into the ditch, then back out again, through some trees, and finally, the patrol car came to a dead stop against a good-sized tree. The vehicle on the road stopped, then the brake lights went out, and the backup lights came on. They were coming back to finish the job. My windshield and the side window glass were both blown out. I should have called on the radio, but the only thing I could think of was getting out of the car and into the woods, an environment that could offer me some concealment. I grabbed the shotgun from the rack, left the vehicle, and headed into the woods. The shotgun held enough rounds to hold them off for a little while, but if I ran out of ammunition, I would be at their mercy. It was dumb not to call for help on the radio. No one knew I was out there. The vehicle backed up and sat there for 30 seconds or so. Finally, it sped off. Perhaps they dropped someone off. I listened intently for some noise, brush cracking, anything. It was dead quiet. After a while, I convinced myself that they had left. Either they figured I was dead in the vehicle, or if they saw me get out, they weren't willing to try and find me. Returning to the vehicle, I called the dispatcher, told her I was on US-10 near Idlewild, and I'd been shot and they need to send backup. I was real lucky. The fact that my head was turned just before the shot was fired probably saved my life. My shoulder caught the buckshot along with the dashboard and windows, but not my head. They took me to the Reed City Hospital for treatment. It was a grazing wound. The flesh had been peeled back, but there was no buckshot to remove. The next day, I held a news conference. I explained that I did not want any manhunt started, no retaliation, white versus black, no revenge. There would simply be an investigation to look for suspects. It probably was just a random shooting of a police officer, and unknown if the shooters were black or white. That is what I told the press. I thought otherwise. Everyone in the county knew that I was the only one that drove that Dodge Ram patrol car. There was no doubt in my mind that this was an organized hit. The shooting of the black man, Mr. Wilson, gave someone the perfect opportunity to get me and make it look like a retaliation shooting. A couple days after the alleged shooting incident, Sheriff Levins requested that Detective Pratt assist in the investigation of the shooting. I'm not sure if he did that because there were already questions being whispered around town about the veracity of his account, or if he thought that a fellow cop would have his back. If he was betting on the latter, he bet on the wrong state police detective. Of the condition of the car, Detective Pratt wrote, The vehicle was checked and it was found that what are believed to be shotgun pellets struck the vehicle in the area of the left driver's door, breaking the large window glass, denting the forward window track, and also the forward door frame after scoring the left vent window. The left spotlight, red lens, had been broken by pieces believed to be lead. The lower left windshield had been struck in two distinct spots, causing penetration of the inner layer of glass and a spiderwebbing effect. The evidence below was found either on the dash, seats, or floorboard of the vehicle. Samples of a grayish-colored substance, possibly powder, were obtained off the windshield, on the inner left side, left outer vent glass, and the outer surface of the red lens on the spotlight. 
In judging the angle that the believed pellets struck the sheriff's vehicle, it is the undersigned's opinion that if fired from the right side of the suspect vehicle, it would have been done while the passenger area was near the rear of the sheriff's vehicle, in the rear bumper area. If the pellets would have been fired from the driver's side of the suspect vehicle, it would have had to have been at least a large car length behind the sheriff's vehicle, probably straddling the center line of the roadway. Newspaper accounts provided by the sheriff state that the suspect's vehicle was alongside the sheriff's vehicle. Of the skid marks, Detective Pratt noted that the marks made by the tires on the left of the sheriff's vehicle measured 9 feet long and on the right 18 feet 10 inches. This, he noted, was presuming that the vehicle was traveling westbound, as the sheriff alleged. After leaving the road, the vehicle traveled in a slight northwest direction, striking a jack pine tree that was about 8 inches in diameter and located 41 feet and 10 inches north of the edge of the roadway. Quote, Actually, the vehicle traveled 48 feet and 1 inch after leaving the roadway until striking the tree. It traveled up a rise, which was 14 inches higher than the roadway, and 16 feet north of the north edge of the roadway, after the vehicle had already traveled 21 feet 4 inches off the road. The only glass believed as having come from the driver's window of the sheriff's patrol car was found 6 feet 4 inches south from the jack pine tree that was struck, and also glass was found alongside the vehicle track, possibly where the door was opened after the incident. No other glass was found, although the area was checked, especially in the area of the rise mentioned earlier, because it was felt that some glass possibly would have fallen when the patrol car jarred as it went up and down the rise. No evidence of the shooting was found, and the exact location where it occurred is unknown, some four days later. A month later, when lab results on the lead pieces came back, Detective Pratt wrote that while it was believed that it could be buck-type shot, the condition was too damaged to determine their original size. The fiber submitted was determined to be characteristic of an overpowder used by Winchester Western in their shot shells, but again, the evidence was too damaged to judge the gauge size. Cloth patches containing wipings from the sheriff's vehicle did give a positive reaction for the presence of lead. Sheriff Blevins contacted Detective Pratt on the 15th, 10 days after the incident, indicating that he had a possible suspect, although there was no motive to be seen other than the sheriff telling him that he had past dealings with the alleged suspect and his family. Months went by with no more in the report other than journal entries where they had received nothing new from the sheriff regarding the incident. In fact, it wasn't until January 5th of 1985 a year and a half with no new information, that Detective Pratt made what would be his complete findings on the matter pretty clear. The paragraph here, at the end of this report, has a notation that reads, Confidential, which, by the way, marks the very first time I have ever gotten a FOIA request back with confidential portions not redacted. As you might imagine, I was very excited. Quote, Sheriff Robert Blevins sustained a contusion on his left shoulder, which possibly could have been caused by striking the door of his patrol vehicle after leaving the roadway of US-10, either when bouncing through the ditch adjacent to the road or when the tree was struck. 
He also suffered two superficial abrasions, laterally, to his left upper arm. There was no lead flare in the abrasions, according to the x-rays taken, on the day of the incident, shortly after the shooting, when he sought treatment at the Reed City Hospital. Although no bandage was necessary, Sheriff Blevins insisted one be applied, so two small butterfly-type band-aids were applied. Sources advise that the alleged wounds were so minute they did not require any type of bandaging, and especially not the type that Sheriff Blevins was observed wearing approximately six weeks after the incident. As lead traces were found on swabs taken by the undersigned off the left spotlight lens, the outside of the left door vent glass, and off the inside of the left windshield, it seems strange that if the sheriff had been shot in the arm, that no lead flaring was found during the x-ray of his arm. Although this investigator was not called to investigate the incident at the time of the occurrence, it is known that no shell casing was ever found. The reason surrounding the sheriff's presence in the area where he was has changed several times, and the sheriff's identification of the alleged suspect vehicle is sketchy at best. The skid marks allegedly caused by the sheriff's patrol vehicle when it left the roadway after the assault did not, in this officer's opinion, compare with a vehicle traveling at the speed the sheriff alleges. The alleged speed of the patrol vehicle was not consistent with an officer allegedly going to back up an officer who was in trouble, as is one of his allegations. In addition, the sheriff's vehicle was equipped with a 12-gauge riot shotgun. Further, the sheriff's department's normal 12-gauge ammunition is Winchester Western Double-Ought Buckshot, the brand type of the wadding found inside the sheriff's vehicle after allegedly being fired upon. The gun had been turned over to then-under-sheriff Joe Kuhlman at the alleged shooting incident. Kuhlman advised that the gun was never checked to determine if it had recently been fired. From how the shotgun pellets struck the sheriff's vehicle, it doesn't appear that if the vehicle was occupied at the time of the shooting, that it was a direct shot being fired at the driver. Also, the sheriff never appeared upset at the time of the shooting incident, at the scene, or later, according to sources. This behavior is unlike him. From sources around the sheriff after the incident, he lacked interest in the pursuit of determining who his attacker or attackers were. Anyone who knows the sheriff knows this behavior is very unusual. Where it cannot be said that the shooting incident did not occur, due to the surrounding circumstances, it tends to leave doubt in one's mind. Final disposition closed. May open later if requested by complainant. But racial animus and questionable assassination attempts weren't even the only pots boiling on his stove at this point. Blevins also alleged that he had found a tape that the aforementioned Joe Kuhlman had made of a conversation between himself, another of Blevins' former undersheriffs, Bruce Finch, and a former deputy, Todd Cheney. Blevins described Cheney as having an axe to grind. Quote, Cheney was another real fine investigator. He was responsible for solving numerous cases and just seemed to keep improving in his ability. There was only one problem. Todd felt that on cases he solved, 
he should be the one interviewing with the media instead of the sheriff. He wanted the limelight. I afforded him the opportunity to do this occasionally, but most of the time I did the interviews. Never was I reluctant to give credit where it was due, but this was my department and I was the one to face re-election every four years. Todd didn't seem to grasp this. The more cases he solved, the better he got, the more resentful he became until he resigned. According to Blevins, sometime after his trouble started, he found an audio tape of three former employees talking about him at the Oasis Cafe in Branch, Michigan. On this alleged tape, his former undersheriff allegedly said he had been offered $15,000 to get information that would discredit Blevins. Allegedly. I'd personally like to put out an APB on that alleged audio tape because I bet that was a damn interesting alleged conversation. Anyway, when Sheriff Blevins' legal troubles finally came to a head, he asked the Attorney General, Frank Kelly, to convene a grand jury when he couldn't get the local prosecutor to bite. This would be the same prosecutor he called a wimp, according to the Detroit Free Press. Blevins continued to allege that there was a local organized crime problem, so he enlisted a man by the name of Vince Persanti, who was head of the State Organized Crime Task Force, to appeal to A.G. Kelly on his behalf. After reading the prepared grand jury proposal that Blevins had brought him, the state attorney general sighed and said, Gentlemen, do you realize everything you're asking me to do here is of a political nature? This looks like a Republican sheriff trying to eliminate his Democratic opponents. There's nothing concrete here, nothing that I can move forward with. A week after that meeting, Sheriff Blevins would learn that the Attorney General was already conducting an investigation. Only that investigation was of him. I know it's taken us a while to get here, but this backstory is important in considering the evidence to follow. All of this was the backdrop against which Lake County Sheriff Robert Blevins allowed Peter Piper to escape from his jail. Yeah, remember him? We haven't even gotten to the double murder he committed while he was on the run, or the assaults on the prostitutes, but now you have a crystal clear picture of why Blevins may have been distracted in December of 1983 when Peter Piper escaped. But the icing on top of his often less than believable biographical accounts is what Sheriff Blevins said about Peter Piper in his book. Quote, Another inmate whom I will always remember is still in the prison system. He was convicted of assault and rape when he was 17 years old. Having served 20 years, he was an adult when I met him. His attitude really impressed me. Committed to straightening out his life, he was very intelligent and extremely trustworthy. Being a high-category trustee, he had access to the whole department and prison grounds. Responsible for changing the oil, cleaning and washing the patrol cars, he handled all the car keys, even those of our unmarked car. The man could have walked or driven away at will. Only at night was he locked up. When his parole request was reviewed, there was so much negative feedback from the community where he had committed the crime as a teenager, the parole board turned him down. After this happened, 
He came to my office one day with a request. I want to be locked up here or return to prison. Why? I asked. If you don't send me back, I'm going to walk away. Sometimes the prison system is not real fair. I'd seen murderers who had entered and been released in much less time than this man had served. I called a state prison representative. The answer was no, he's a low-risk prisoner, and that status will not change no matter what he says. He can't return to the prison, and you can't lock him up all the time. This response I relayed to the prisoner. One of this prisoner's duties was to push a candy cart between the cells each day. The inmates could use up to $2 a day of their money to purchase some snacks to eat or buy cigarettes. The cash box could easily contain three to $500. There was an envelope in the cash box at my door one morning. In my office, I opened the envelope, reading the note inside. Thank you for treating me like a man. As much as I could, I enjoyed being in your jail. As the parole board could not see fit to release me, I told you I would walk away, and I did last night. I could have taken the unmarked car and been in Florida by the time you got to work, but I didn't. All the keys are in the cash box, along with the $500 cash and a current inventory from the candy cart. I could not and would not take any money from that cart knowing that you'd be personally held accountable for it. I've only taken my property. Good luck. Below, he signed his name. Pete. I called the prison system and told them of the walkaway. There was no breakout, just a walkaway. Deep down in my heart, I hoped he would not get caught. That there would be a new, happy life. However, after two years or so, he was caught and returned to Jackson Prison, where he still resides. Peter Piper essentially told Sheriff Levins that he was going to walk away from the facility if he wasn't locked down, and then he did just that. I wonder how much of what happened when his trustee escaped still weighs on Blevins, if anything. And when all is said and done, and history recorded the matter, did Sheriff Blevins regret uttering this line? Deep down in my heart, I hoped he would not get caught, that there would be a new, happy life. Next week, I'll finally introduce you to our heroes, and after that, the Thompsons. Stay tuned.